Oh, that's so good to sing together of God's grace, is it not? Such amazing grace to save sinners like us. What a joy to celebrate Jesus together today with you in this service and to see God's grace at work in people's lives through baptism and in our prayers and our music and now in the preaching of God's word. Mom's just a special word to say, Happy Mother's Day. Like, we're proud of you. you. You make Jesus look good. We're so thankful for our moms and all of you that are here today. We just want to say a special blessing to you. Well, let's continue our worship now by um, opening our copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you today, just raise your hand nice and tall. We would love to give you a copy of God's Word. And today, in today's message, we're going to be going all throughout Scripture. So it'll be really helpful for you to have a Bible open in your lap so that you can follow along. Now, I admit that uh, today's message, called The Sinfulness of Sin, is not typically a Mother's Day message, all right? So all of you moms out there, don't get too nervous. But before we dive into our new preaching series on Ephesians, and we encounter in Ephesians chapter 1 this grand manifesto of the sovereignty of God in our salvation, I thought I better carefully set the table for our study with a message on the sinfulness of of sin. After all, the glorious doctrines of God's election and predestination that are revealed in Ephesians chapter 1 are actually God's grace solution for our sin problem. And so we will never rightly understand God's marvelous grace and salvation until we first rightly understand our problem with the sinfulness of sin. So if you are all psyched up today and ready for Ephesians chapter 1, be patient, be patient. This reminds me of when our family moved to California because, uh, you know, we'd get invited to somebody's house for dinner in California and we'd show up at 6 o'clock because dinner was set for 6 and here in central Illinois, if dinner's set for 6, you show up at 6, by 6.05, 6.10, you're seated at the table, you're ready to pray, you're ready to eat, but not so in California. You show up at six o'clock, they haven't even started the grill yet. You've got an hour to maybe an hour and a half of appetizers and hanging out and fellowship before you ever sit down to eat. So that's what's happening today. Today is just a theological appetizer, okay? This is just the palate cleansing that's going to happen before we get to Ephesians next week. So we're going to see, we have to see what scripture actually teaches about sin's consequences in us. We're going to look at many different passages today, but to, I've selected um, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20 for our scripture reading. So if you're able to stand, I'd invite you to stand out of honor of God's read, uh, the reading of God's word. I'm reading from the ESV translation, Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Paul writes this, What then? Are we Jews any better off than the Gentiles? He says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all people, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, 
No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All people have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp, that's a viper, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray that for God's help as we go into this message. Lord, you are the God of glory. You are the sinless one. <laughs> You've never sinned, but you alone have the solution for our sin. For certainly, as we've just read, our hearts are darker than we often think they are. Our, our life is full of sin, so we need your help. Even in this preaching event, we need your spirit to open our eyes and give us spiritual understanding. We need your spirit to give us ears to hear your word. We need you, Father, to teach us from your word about the sinfulness of sin that we might run to you and that we might find salvation in Christ alone. Oh God, you know that this message is not a popular one and so I pray for your strength for me and that you would help the words of my mouth to be absolutely clear and that you'd help the words of scripture to come and flow through me with free course and have power in our hearts and minds. I pray for humility and teachability for our church family, Father. Some of this is challenging and I just pray, Father, that you would please Humble us that Christ might be better exalted and lifted high among us. Father, please glorify your name, for then we will be satisfied. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, I want you to know I am very, very excited to preach this message to you today. I've got both of my barrels loaded. I hope you have your seatbelts on and your crash helmets on because we're going in after sin and this is going to be challenging. So I want you to know I'm approaching today's text with some extra prayers for you and some extra care and tenderness in how I do this because I am well aware that no one naturally believes what the Bible teaches about sin. Apart from humble submission to God's word, no one in the world would actually believe what God teaches us about our own sinfulness. The sinfulness of sin is a very unpopular topic and one that most people, even professing Christians, despise and reject, often with strong emotion. So to rightly understand what God's word teaches about our sin, 
is actually devastating to our pride. It's contrary to many of our natural assumptions about who we are and how we relate to God. So please listen carefully to me right now. I have no desire this morning to be a bully pulpit. I simply want to teach you what God's Word says. I want you to know God's Word for yourself. I desire to have my faith and my life built on God's word, and I know you do too. So I pray that God would help us to put our trust and our belief in what God's word says, even at times when we find that it's different than what we had assumed, or different than what our tradition was, or our human philosophy might argue. So therefore, if you experience any strong reactions or any, any serious questions in your heart and mind as we go through this message today, just know that's okay. That is okay. Write down those questions that come to you during this message. So write them down so you don't lose them. And then pray for God's grace and, and for spiritual understanding and for humility so, and then let your questions drive you deeper into God's word. The local church here at Newcastle Bible Church is a safe place for you to ask questions and to wrestle with the text of scripture. I know all of our elders and pastors well enough to know that we would be delighted at any time to sit down and open God's word with you and help you find answers to your questions from God's word. So today's sermon has two parts. In the first half, we're going to examine what God says about the spiritual consequences of our sin that's in our own hearts. And then in the second half, we're going to delight how God himself miraculously overcomes the consequences of sin in us through a miraculous salvation. And hopefully in this way, I'm going to set a beautiful table setting for what we're about to learn in Ephesians starting next week. All right? So let's first consider how the Bible teaches that sin so corrupts our hearts that only God could actually save us. Anyone born to a sinner automatically inherits a sin nature, right? So ever since the first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, the entire human race has been corrupted by sin and personally engaged in sin. You say, well, Kevin, what is sin? Sin is simply rebellion against God. So ever since Genesis 3, every person on the earth has failed to love God and love others the way that God deserves. We've rebelled against God. Every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we rightly deserve sin's penalty, which is death. But Scripture reveals much more than sin's penalty of death. Scripture also reveals how sin has corrupted our minds, corrupted our wills in spiritually devastating ways while we're still living. For example, I want you to open your Bible 
to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, where we're going to learn how sin makes us spiritually deaf or unhearing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul, the apostle, is defending his gospel ministry and all of the humility of his gospel ministry by explaining how he wanted the church in Corinth's faith to not rest on the human persuasion or the power of human rhetoric, but he wanted their faith to rest on the power of God. And then he makes this profound statement in verse 14, 1 Corinthians 2, 14. Paul writes, for the natural person, that's referring to an unbeliever, uh, the non-Christian, a person who's not yet been born again by the Spirit of God, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So did you catch that? The unbeliever is not able. Notice it doesn't say not willing. It says not able. The unbeliever is not able to understand the gospel message. Sin so corrupts the human heart that it makes us spiritually deaf to the life-saving message of salvation by faith alone in Christ. So notice this, church. No sinner could ever be humanly convinced to believe in Jesus. No amount of, per of persuasive uh, apologetic evidence will ever cause an unbeliever to believe in Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2.14 is clear. The message of Jesus' substitutionary death and resurrection for the salvation of sinners is only foolishness to an unbeliever. Sin makes us spiritually deaf. And so we're unable to understand spiritual truth. Now flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where we learn that sin also makes us spiritually blind. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 14 to 15, Paul's describing here how sin hardens the human mind. So that even when we read scripture, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over our hearts. In other words, sin blinds us like a veil from being able to truly understand God's word for our salvation. Chapter 4, verse 4 says it even more clearly. It says, in their case, speaking of unbelievers, the God of this world, little g, referring to Satan, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Translation, sin so enslaves the heart to Satan's deception that sin makes us spiritually blind. It's not that we see Jesus and purposefully choose to reject him. No, sin so blinds us that we can't even see Jesus as desirable. Now let's go back to Romans. We're going all over today. I know you've got to keep up with me here, but we're going to go back to Romans because I want you to see a very important couple of verses in Romans chapter 8. Not only does sin make us spiritually deaf, and spiritually blind. 
But according to Romans 8, verses 7 to 8, sin makes us spiritually unable. Or you could write it down this way in your notes. Sin makes us spiritually powerless. In Romans 8, the life of the flesh is against the life of the spirit. So verses 7 to 8 are talking about unbelievers, those who are hostile against God and his spirit. But notice carefully what Romans 8 teaches us about how sin corrupts our minds. Romans 8 verse 7 says this, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now that's very strong language, isn't it? Notice, it doesn't say that sinners will not submit to God. This says sinners cannot submit to God. Sinners cannot please God. These are strong statements of ability. So make no mistake, sin so corrupts our hearts that we are spiritually deaf, we are spiritually blind, and we are spiritually unable to please God. We cannot make any decision for God. We cannot obey any part of God's law in our own strength of our own flesh. Sin makes every soul profoundly powerless to do anything that would be pleasing to God. But of course, sin is never morally neutral, right? So let's observe then, from the prophet Jeremiah, how our sin makes us spiritually evil. Spiritually evil. According to Jeremiah 13, 23, here in this verse, the prophet Jeremiah is asking some obvious questions. He starts out and he says, can an Ethiopian change his skin? And of course, the right answer is no. (laughs) No one can change their own skin color. Okay. So what's the next question? Well, can the leopard change his spots? Again, the obvious answer is no. So then follow the prophet's argument. Then also you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Translation, a person who is born into sin has as much hope for doing good as an Ethiopian has for changing his own skin color or a leopard has for getting rid of his own spots. See, sin so corrupts our hearts that everything we do is evil and vile from God's holy perspective. Now, I just said something really strong, and you might be saying, now, wait a minute, Pastor, I think you overspoke there. Because I know an unbeliever who's really a pretty nice guy. I mean, I, I have friends, I have unbelievers who, who are really nice. They're, they're moral people. They're, they're good and generous. But listen carefully to what the prophet Isaiah says now in Isaiah 64, verse 6. Because there, Isaiah says, we have all, that includes everybody, we have all become like one who is unclean and our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Our righteous deeds are polluted. Now, this is really gross, but that word polluted garment 
in the original Hebrew text literally refers to a pile of rags that a woman had just used to clean herself after her menstrual cycle. So what God's saying here is any external good that you're able to do on your own strength is unclean filth. Any human morality apart from God's spirit stinks to high heaven with the vileness of pride and self-righteousness. Sin has so corrupted us that even our external morality, even our most sincere religious acts are evil and wicked before a holy God. See, sin makes every part of us spiritually evil. Now brace yourself for this because sin doesn't just make us evil enemies of God. Sin makes us spiritually evil dead. Sin doesn't just make us deaf and blind and unable and wholly evil, but sin makes us spiritual corpses. Ephesians chapter 2 says that every person is dead in trespasses and sins. We're by nature children of wrath, meaning every Human being is spiritually dead. We're enslaved to Satan's deception and demonic spirits. We're living as children of disobedience. We're only useful by our nature as objects of God's righteous condemnation. You're like, thanks for the pick up, pick them up message on Mother's Day. That's really good. But listen, I know this is offensive to our pride. But this is what the word of God says. So moms, let's talk about this a little bit. It's Mother's Day. So you're going to go to a baby shower, okay? So I do not want you to take away from this message that what you need to do is address that card on the baby shower. Say, to the walking dead. Don't do that, all right? You don't have to address your card to say, to the viper in a Christian diaper. No, you don't have to do that. Let's, but, but, but seriously now, let's just, let's, let's acknowledge what the scripture is teaching and be humble enough to say, based on what the scripture is teaching, there's no such thing as a spiritually innocent or a morally neutral person. Nowhere does the scripture teach an age of accountability. After all, even infants and the severely handicapped die. But the scripture says the only reason for death is sin. So all people have sinned. All people have and carry a sin nature. And sin is far more destructive to our hearts than we have ever dared to dream. Sin makes us spiritually deaf and blind and unable and evil and spiritually dead. Sin deceives us into thinking that we are actually sophisticated and we are competent and we are able to please God even while we are just spiritual corpses drifting down the river of humanity towards an eternal hell. 
Remember, after all, what James 2.10 teaches, that whoever breaks the law in just one point is accountable for all of it. Therefore, loved ones, according to what God's word has to say, no one has an excuse. We are all justly condemned before a holy God. Sin has so corrupted our hearts that we could never initiate or even desire our own salvation. So then let's draw out two implications from this before we continue. First, sinful hearts are only free to do evil. Have you ever heard the term, um, God created all of us with a free will? Raise your hand. Has anybody heard of that term, the doctrine of the free will of man? Yeah, that's a really common thing, right? That's a common belief among Christians. And just because the term free will doesn't show up in Scripture doesn't mean that it's not true. After all, we believe in the Trinity, and the word Trinity isn't used in the Bible either. But we must be careful to rightly define the free will of man according to what the Bible actually says. If we understand man's free will to refer to the fact that God created every person to make their own choices, then that would be biblically true. After all, God created every person morally responsible to choose to love him and obey him and worship him with all of their lives. God created us with the choice and the accountability and responsibility to choose to believe in him. However, what we've just learned is that sin has so corrupted the human heart that now sinful hearts will only choose evil. Titus 3 verse 3 explains that unbelievers are actually not free to choose righteousness because they are actually slaves to what? Titus 3 3 on the screen. They're slaves to various passions and pleasures. So a biblical understanding of free will cannot mean that sinners have the ability to choose God because sin took away that ability. Sinful hearts are spiritually unable. Sinful hearts are only free, quote unquote, to do what they want to do, which according to Titus 3.3 is always a selfish and a sinful desire that always leads to relational brokenness as the verse goes on to teach. So then let's submit our understanding of man's free will to the clear teaching of Scripture. Biblically speaking, sinful hearts are only free to do evil. Or to say it all another way, although we are eternally responsible to repent and believe and choose Jesus, sin's corruption makes it impossible to seek God ourselves. Clearly, God commands all men everywhere to repent. God commands you and I and every person in this world to repent and to believe the gospel that you may be saved. Biblically speaking, then, the doctrine of the free will of man teaches the moral responsibility of every person to choose Jesus. If you want to write that down in your notes, just for clarity, say biblical free will equals moral responsibility to choose faith in Christ. 
But sin has so corrupted our hearts that no sinner can actually choose God on our own. We are enslaved to sin's passions. We will only choose evil. We cannot understand God. We cannot see God. We cannot please God in our own flesh. We are spiritually dead. And as we read earlier from Romans 3, no one seeks for God. No one will ever decide to follow Jesus or receive Jesus on their own. It is a biblical impossibility because of the corruption of sin upon our hearts and minds. Now, I wish I had about a half an hour more in this text because what I'm about to do is I'm going to lay a bomb and it's going to go off and I'm going to move on because I don't have time to deal with it. But that's what I'm going to do. If you understand what I'm teaching you about the sinfulness of sin, then you understand why we can't take what is often considered a common understanding of God's election, that God's election was only corporate. It was only for the nation of Israel. And every time the Bible speaks about God's election or predestination, he's referring to the corporate nation of Israel and his choice of Israel, not referring to us individual sinners. If you understand what we just taught about personal sin and the sinfulness of sin, you'll understand why the doctrine of election and God's sovereign grace has to be individual, not only corporate. Second, often in the church, um, God's election kind of gets man-sized by being redefined as God's foreknowledge, like God's foresight. God just looked down the hall of time and he saw who was going to choose him. And then based on who he was going to choose him, he elected those people based on his foresight. But listen, based on what we just studied, if God's election is only foresight, no sinner would ever choose God because of sin's consequences on their own mind. That's the bomb. So let's quickly now move on to our second point and rejoice that God is, God is the author of our salvation. Having understood all this black cloth of our sinfulness, we rejoice. God is the author of our salvation. God himself does what our sinful hearts could never do. Hebrews 12, 2 says it this way, Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Jonah 2, 9 says salvation belongs to Yahweh. In Exodus chapter 33, when Moses is talking to God and he says, hey, God, how can you dwell with such a stiff-necked and sinful people? God responds to Moses in Exodus 33 and he says, I'll tell you how I'm going to dwell with sinners. It's because my name is Yahweh and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. In other words, the miracle of our salvation includes God's grace rescuing us from the sinful corruption of our own minds. Now, we're going to have to move through this part of your outline very, very quickly. I don't have time to fully explain all this today, but that's okay, because remember, this is just the appetizer. This is just the palate cleanser, and we're getting there later when we get to Ephesians. But notice the parallel the parallel thought between your outline and your notes pages, we're often going to go back to the same scriptures in the same context that we just considered earlier in this message. So first, let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 
as we know how God, God is the one who gives us spiritual hearing. By his saving mercy, God gives us his spirit that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. So the Apostle Paul's preaching doesn't rely on human wisdom. It doesn't rely on human persuasion, but on God. Because God is the one who imparts the gospel in words taught by the spirit as he's interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. In other words, look at the text. It's so clear. Only those who are spiritual, those who have already received the Spirit of God, only they are able to hear and understand the preaching of the gospel. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4, God is the one who mercifully gives us spiritual sight so that we might believe in Jesus Chapter 3, verse 16 says, When one turns to the Lord, the veil of blinding unbelief is removed. Now, if verse 16 is all that we had, we might look at verse 16 and say, Well, well, look at that, though. I, I think what removed our spiritual blindness is when we chose to turn to Jesus. But if you just keep reading, you realize that we didn't choose to remove our blindness but the Spirit did. Verse 17 says, For where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And then it's more clearly stated, even in chapter 4, verse 6, where God says, Let light shine out of darkness. For the God who says, Let light shine out of darkness and created the physical creation in Genesis chapter 1, He's the same God who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So see that, church? God is the one who saves us from sin's blindness. God is the one who opens our eyes so that we can see Jesus and actually treasure him above everything else in our life. Isn't that glorious? Now go back to Romans 8, and we're going to see how the Spirit of God overcomes our spiritual inability God gives us spiritual ability through the Spirit of Jesus who is always with us. Romans 8.13 says, By the Spirit we can put to death the deeds of the body and live. What? He just got done saying it in verses 7 and 8 that we cannot submit to God's law and we cannot please God. But listen, verses 7 and 8 were it's before we were born again before we received God's Spirit. But now that God Himself is with us, we have spiritual ability to please God. We have spiritual ability to obey God. We have spiritual ability to fight sin in our lives because God has given us that ability by giving us His Spirit. This just keeps getting better and better, doesn't it? The glory of God in our salvation. Now look at Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10 which teaches us that God gives us spiritual righteousness as well. You remember back to Isaiah 64, where God taught that even our own best religious efforts were like a pile of menstruous rags on the floor. But now rejoice at what God does in our salvation, according to Isaiah 61.10. The prophet says, I will greatly rejoice in Yahweh. My soul shall exalt in my God. For he has clothed me 
with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Just like a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and like a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Oh, loved ones, salvation belongs to our God. And when he hides you in Christ and when he makes you one with Jesus, he declares you to be perfectly righteous. Hallelujah for the glory of the gospel of our God. Our salvation glorifies God. Only a God of resurrection power could transform people who are accustomed to doing evil and who are dead to a people of righteousness and life. And of course, that's exactly what God does in our salvation because Ephesians 2 verse 4 says, He is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. Even while we were dead in trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. Oh, no wonder Ephesians 2 exalts in this triumph that we are saved by grace and by grace alone. We could never have saved ourselves. Sin had so corrupted our hearts that only God himself could have ever saved us. So rejoice, church, that God alone is the author and the initiator of our salvation. God alone gives spiritual hearing. God alone gives spiritual sight. God gives us spiritual ability. God gives us spiritual righteousness. God gives us spiritual life, which helps us then to draw two important conclusions today. First, write this down in your notes that once you understand the sinfulness of sin and what God does in salvation, then it helps us to conclude that saving faith itself is a grace gift from God. Although we are biblically responsible to put our faith in Jesus, sin's consequences on our hearts make that action impossible. No sinner will ever seek God apart from God first giving that sinner the gift of saving faith. This truth is actually all over Scripture, and we'll spend much more time unpacking it through Ephesians in the coming weeks. But for now, I just want to show you three verses to consider. First, Acts 13, 48, which says, As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So notice, their their saving faith, or their belief, was a result of God's first appointing them to be saved. Or in John chapter 6, Jesus clearly teaches that faith is a gift when he says it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is first granted to him by the Father. You see, God doesn't wait to react to our faith before he saves us. Scripture is clear, God gives us faith that we might be saved. Saving faith itself is part of God's amazing grace. In John chapter 10, Jesus makes this point crystal clear when he teaches, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now notice, that is backwards 
from most of the teaching of the evangelical church today. Most teach that you're not part of God's flock because you have not believed. But that's the exact opposite of what Jesus teaches, right? Jesus teaches that you do not believe because you're not part of my flock. God is the author of salvation, and when he saves you, he makes you one of his children, he puts you in his flock, and then you will believe on him, and you will love him. If you said all of this another way, we could say this. Although we are eternally responsible to repent and believe, only God gets the credit when we actually do believe. Salvation belongs to our God. So while the sinfulness of sin means that our sinful hearts are only free, quote-unquote, to do evil, according to Titus 3.3, Titus 3.4 goes on to marvel at God's gracious freedom himself. God is truly free. God has a free will. God's grace and sovereign act is free to save sinners. For when God's goodness and loving kindness appeared to us, he saved us, not according to our works, because, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So then the salvation of a sinner is entirely God's choice. Our salvation owes absolutely nothing to to ourselves, but our salvation owes everything to Yahweh and his grace. This doctrine of God's sovereign grace in election, oh, it has much mystery, it has much wonder, it raises all kinds of questions in our minds, right? But just as the end of Romans 11 exclaims, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been God's counselor? Who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things, including the salvation of sinners, and to him be the glory forever. Amen. So then the sinfulness of sin becomes a glorious table setting for Paul's grand manifesto of God's marvelous salvation that we're going to find in Ephesians chapter 1. After all, sin so corrupts our hearts that only God could save us. The biblical teaching about the sinfulness of our sin necessarily requires that every part of our salvation, even from the first heartbeat of saving faith, must be the supernatural and miraculous work of our saving God. And in this way, God sovereignly works to save sinners all in a manner that humbles human pride and exalts his triumphant glory. May God help us, church, to rejoice that God alone is a God of salvation. And may our hearts be satisfied in his saving love as we submit all of our doctrine and all of our understanding to the authority of his word. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you. Thank you for being a God who saves. Thank you for being a God who, who while we were yet sinners, died for us who did for us what we could have never done for ourselves. Even today, Father, in this moment, you are drawing sinners to yourself all by your amazing mercy and grace. And so we pray, Father, please have 
Have mercy upon us. Give us understanding. Help us to wrestle with our questions about your godness with faith and with humility. You are the God who taught that I am that I am. And you told Moses that I will do what I will do. There is no God like you and we will never fully understand you. But Father, help us to believe in you. Give us faith. Give us delight in knowing you for your mercy is marvelous. We praise you you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand together and celebrate that God divinely intervened in our lives to save us from our sinful nature and actions and show us that his mercy is more. Father so tender is called 
that is such good news. Our sins are far worse than we may have thought. From a biblical perspective, our sins are far darker and stronger and deeper than what you may have ever thought. But Jesus' mercy is more. Where our sins have abounded, God's grace abounds still the more. So that means there's several ways you could be responding to today's, today's message. And if you're one of these people who are responding by just being overwhelmed at your sinfulness, you're just overwhelmed. You didn't realize how sinful the Bible says you are. And you're just overwhelmed. Maybe you're caught in sin. You don't, you don't know how you're going to ever get out of it. Oh, church, God's mercy is stronger. His grace is greater than your sin. And though your sin is deep, his grace abounds still more. Trust in Jesus. Believe on Jesus and you will be saved. But you said, but you just told me I can't. I don't know if I can. Oh, loved ones, if you desire to trust in Jesus, if you desire for Jesus to save you from your sin, that is because God's grace is already at work in your life. That should give you the confidence that God's electing grace is working to bring you to him. So come boldly and humbly, confess your sins, and you will be forgiven. And you will receive the gift of eternal life, the gift that you could never earn on your own. So come to Jesus. Pray that God will give you faith. Pray that God will give you understanding. Pray that God will give you the power to defeat sin by the power of his spirit this week in your life. Oh, our God is an amazing God of glory. He glorifies himself by saving weak, humble, hopeless sinners like me and like you. So let's pray our benediction before we go out into our week of witness and worship. Today's benediction comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 to 24. Will you pray it out loud with me before we go? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all those who are resting in the amazing, sovereign, free work of our God would say, amen. You are dismissed.